Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 23rd of November 2022. News. Homeless death toll in Scotland nearly doubles in four years. This article is by Martin Williams. The number of deaths from homelessness in Scotland has nearly doubled in four years. Shocking new figures have revealed. An estimated 222 people died while identified as experiencing homelessness in Scotland in 2021 according to a new report by the National Records of Scotland. The figures show the numbers have nearly doubled since the 121 recorded fatalities in 2017 when records began. There were two deaths where the underlying cause was COVID-19, but most were the results of drug misuse. Midlothian, Glasgow City and the City of Edinburgh had the highest rates of homelessness deaths within Scotland, whilst Nahilhelen, CR, Orkney Islands, Perth and Kinross and Stirling Council areas recorded none. The Scottish Tenants' Organisation, STO, said the homeless death record was shocking and a national disgrace. Some 81% of those who died were male and 60% were aged under 45. Head of Vital Events at NRS, Julie Ramsey, said drug misuse deaths of people experiencing homelessness fell in the past year for the first time from 151 to 127, but it was still the cause of over half of all deaths for people experiencing homelessness in 2021. Suicide accounted for 9% of the fatalities and 7% were alcohol-specific deaths. She said that as in previous years, the death rates of males was much higher than that of females. Some 81% of deaths in 2021 were male and 19% were female. And the age profile of females was younger, with 72% of those who died being under the age of 45. Separate NRS figures on estimated homeless deaths using a statistical model showed the numbers had risen from 164 in 2017 to 250 in 2021. The development comes a day after the publication of the Blueprint to Save Lives, reported by advocacy group The Faces and Voices of Recovery, otherwise known as FAVOR, which claimed that politicians have forgotten Scotland's drug deaths crisis. STO campaign coordinator Sean Clerkin 
said the deaths are a national disgrace and the actual identified number of homeless deaths being the highest since they started keeping records in 2017 only compounds the shame of allowing so many homeless people to die unsupported as addiction services for alcohol and drugs and mental care have been slashed after a decade of cuts. There needs to be a massive increase in public spending on addiction services and mental health care, allied to the authorities building a lot more social rented homes, prioritising the homeless for new social rented homes and the wraparound services they need. We need actions, not platitudes, from both the British and Scottish governments on tackling the scourge of homelessness in the 21st century. Official figures for 2019 showed that Scotland had the highest homeless death rate when compared to England and Wales, with a rate of 52.2 per million population aged 15 to 74, compared to 18 in England and 14.3 in Wales. Matt Downey, Chief Executive of Crisis, said no one should expect these figures as normal. Every single one of these deaths represents a tragedy and an injustice. Every one of these people were part of our communities and they will be missed. People are dying while experiencing homelessness year on year on year, leaving friends and families behind and with their potential left unrealised. We must act now to stop more people dying while experiencing homelessness. This can't be allowed to keep happening. We must prevent homelessness from happening in the first place and provide support for people who have lost their home to help them end their homelessness. We know what causes homelessness and we know how to end it. If we work together, we can do that, but we don't have a moment to waste. The death toll has come despite the offer of hotel accommodation to prevent deaths from COVID-19. When lockdown began in March, hundreds of rough sleepers were brought in off the streets to help slow the spread of coronavirus. With temporary accommodation full, many were placed in hotels. But campaigners raised concerns that the B&Bs and hotels were not fit to deal with people in crisis and that consequently homeless people were losing out on access to drug and alcohol addiction services and mental health care. Scottish Conservative Shadow Cabinet Secretary for Social Justice Housing and Local Government, Miles Briggs, said the figures were nothing short of appalling. My thoughts are with everyone who is grieving the loss of a loved one as a result, he said. In modern Scotland, it is shameful that hundreds of people are still dying on our streets. What is most concerning is that the figures are only heading in the wrong direction. The number of deaths is a blight on our communities and for far too long, the SNP have failed to tackle the problem. Far too many of these deaths are still occurring as a result of drugs and, by her own admission, Nicola Sturgeon took her eye off the ball in tackling this crisis. This must be an urgent wake-up call for SNP ministers to finally back the Scottish Conservatives' Right to Recovery Bill. 
That would guarantee access to treatment for all those who need it and who are struggling with addiction. In response to the death toll numbers, Housing Secretary Shona Robison said behind every statistic is a human story and this year's report provides heartbreaking reading. We know that experience of multiple forms of extreme disadvantage, including homelessness, poor mental health and opioid dependence, is linked to higher rates of ill health and premature death. We are committed to doing all we can to address disadvantage and prevent homelessness from happening in the first place. That is why we are introducing new homelessness prevention duties in the forthcoming housing bill and why we continue to support local authorities to develop housing first programmes. A recent evaluation of Scotland's Housing First Pathfinder programme saw 579 people with experience of homelessness and multiple disadvantage receive keys to a new home and a new life. While it is positive to see a fall in the number of drug-related deaths compared to 2020, the numbers remain worryingly high. One focus of the National Mission on Drugs Deaths is to strengthen partnerships between health and homelessness services to improve outcomes for people experiencing homelessness and multiple complex needs, including substance use. The NRS said that estimated homeless deaths figures were experimental. They admit that establishing an accurate number is hard because not all people who die while experiencing homelessness have their lack of permanent home recorded on their death registration record. The estimated number of deaths is established by examining death registration records to find people who were either in temporary accommodation or were sleeping rough before they died and adding to this a conservative estimated figure based on sampling. The probability is the true figure is higher, it said. This article is by Martin Williams. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 23rd of November 2022, from the Voices section, How reading can make you a better footballer, Danny Scott. A young man detaches from his team and walks from the halfway line to the penalty spot. His nation's fans hold their scarves in their mouths, their hopes swoop and soar around him. He passes his opposite number as he makes a lonely walk back to his teammates, shows his hunch and suppresses his sympathy. He knows what's at stake. It's late, the air has cooled, in an hour it will be a new day. A thousand journalists hover their hands over their keyboards, ready to cast this young man as a hero or a villain for the rest of his life. The player places the ball in a spot 11 metres in front of the 2 metre goalkeeper, who smacks the crossbar with his fist, causing condensation to rain down in the goal line like tears. A hush settles in the stadium. Camera lenses click like crickets. Who knows 60,000 people could become so quiet? Three paces back from the ball, the young man only notices the stillness inside. He's fine. After all, he's lived do or die moments hundreds of times before. As Mr Fox, as Katniss, as Huck Finn. He smells and begins his run-up. As you are reading this, 831 footballers are living out their boyhood dreams in Qatar at the biggest sporting event on the planet. 
as murky, odd and appalling as this edition of the World Cup is, across their shoulders lie the hopes and dreams of 32 nations. From a young age, coaches will have worked hard with these fo- footballers on their technique and fitness, but I wonder how many of them were encouraged to read books as part of their training regime. Even though the modern football managers take a more holistic approach to coaching than their growling forebears, Chelsea manager Graham Potter, for example, has a master's degree in leadership and emotional intelligence, it would still come as a shock to hear that reading for pleasure is encouraged at the team hotel. It's a shame. Research suggests that reading could aid athletic performance in key areas. So much of football training focuses on the heart and lungs, but mental fitness is as important. Reading is fitness work for the brain. The brain is the most complex organ in the human body and reading is proving to actively increase its power. There's no downside. If young players want to truly give themselves the best chance of playing at the top level, they must pay attention to all parts of their body, mind included. Brain fitness is a must. As the late great Johan Cruyff said, you play football with your head and your legs are just there to help you. Reading for pleasure is proven to train your brain to think faster, harder and smarter. It could help players process information and spot patterns where others see chaos. It's not just footballers for whom concentration is key. Track and field athletes work hard to develop the ability to block everything else out and focus on the ball in front of them. Many of them work with sports psychologists to make this possible. But football is a team sport and, as any international coach will tell you, they choose their scores for summer tournaments based on personality as well as ability. Players who bring harmony and humour to their team would have been among the first on the plane to the World Cup. The glue guys. Lauded and rich from a young age, some professional footballers can lack the ability to climb into someone's skin and walk around in it, as the Kelly Mockingbirds Atticus Finch suggests we do. What Finch is describing is empathy. And there is no better way to enhance your ability to empathise with others and to become a better teammate as a result than vividly experiencing the world through other people's eyes and books. And, with increased concentration, empathy and brain power becomes confidence. An undersold trait of professional footballers is often their incredible self-belief and a lesser-known benefit of reading is that it improves this very trait. Tragically, poverty can knock it. The glitz of the World Cup will play out against the bleakest of domestic backdrops. This Christmas, more families than ever across Scotland will be reliant on food banks to feed their children, but people who are struggling deserve more than a full stomach. In a country as rich as ours, that should be a given. That's why Scottish Book Trust Christmas Appeal seeks books to give to families in need through food banks this festive season. To a football-mad child experience a harsh winter at home, playing at a World Cup may seem a long way off, with an imagination fired by books, however, they may, might just be able to plot their way there, chapter by chapter. And that was a voices piece by Danny Scott, who is the author of Scotland Stars FC, a series of six football-filled chapter books aimed at young readers aged 6 to 8. Find more about the books at discoverkelpies.co.uk From the Herald Scotland Wednesday the 23rd of November 2022 from the Voices section, How Scott Soil Expert Helped Solve Karen Buckley Murder Case by Caroline Wilson. The sample she scrutinises could be as small as a grain of rice or sand. However, her meticulous scientific analysis helped solve one of the, one of the most shocking murders in a generation. In April 2015, 
Professor Lorna Dawson was enlisted by Police Scotland to examine traces of dirt found on the boot of 21-year-old Alexander Pactow. The former public schoolboy from Bearsden was later convicted of killing occupational therapy student Karen Buckley shortly after meeting her in a Glasgow nightclub. Professor Dawson's lab work proved that Pactow had recently been at a lockup he had rented in High Creighton Farm on the outskirts of the city where he burned a mattress and clothes before concealing Buckley's body inside a barrel. Crucially, her analysis also found traces of soil in the killer's car that had been missed when it had been cleaned. It proved the vehicle had been at Dawson Park in Glasgow where Karen's handbag was dumped. Professor Dawson was drafted in by police soon after the 24-year-old Glasgow Caledonian University student was reported missing by her friends on April the 12th. It was right at the outset, said Professor Dawson, who is head of Soil Forensics Group at the James Hutton Institute. The great thing about Police Scotland is that they include their own scientists from the Scottish Police Authority Forensic Services, so the biologists, the chemists, they regularly attend forensic strategy meetings. They also ask where appropriate the external experts such as myself. In this particular case I was phoned and told that poor Karen had gone missing and might still be alive and we've got the boots of the last person she was seen with on CCTV. Karen had met Pactow in the sanctuary nightclub in the city's west end before he offered to drive her home, instead killing her in his car in nearby Kelvin Way. They had retained one of the boots for DNA, said Professor Dawson. You would usually do the DNA first before any soil examination is done, but in this case there was a hope that it might lead to where she might be held captive and she might still be alive. Sadly, that wasn't to be and it was a case of doing things as quickly as possible. The priority was, can you tell us where she might be and where he had last walked? She says police and scientists involved in criminal investigations are fortunate in Scotland to have an extensive soil archive, which can be mapped with 14,000 locations across the country. She said, We carried out surveys in the 1970s and repeated the surveys in the late 2000s at every 10km point across Scotland, plus any other types of soil that weren't covered by that grid survey. All those soils were analysed for their elemental composition, their pH, the carbon content, their texture, plus lots more information. When I get a sample, I can compare the results with all the information from 14,000 locations. The sample impact of his boot was a match for an area around High Creighton Farm in Mogai. There were two areas that shared the characteristics of the boot and that supported a piece of intelligence the police were investigating at the time, she said. Someone had told them that he kept some equipment in a lockup at that same farm. It's often supportive information that gives them greater confidence that something has happened at a particular place or not. After Karen's body was recovered and the case became a murder investigation, Professor Lawson was then asked with analyzing soil found in Pactow's car tyre. She said, His car had been seized and we went down and sampled that car at Garkosh. The blood in the DNA and any fibres or hairs are recovered. We would then look at any soil and vegetation after that. Professor Lawson said the evidence linking Pactow to the murder of the court student was overwhelming. She said, We found soil under the tyres. He had taken the car to get washed and valeted, but he still managed to recover soil that the washing process had not removed. Pactow was jailed for a minimum of 23 years in September 2015, with Judge Lady Ray describing him as a cold and calculating man. 
Professor Dawson is currently involved in four cases and spends around 80% of her time on police investigations across the UK, with the remainder of her time teaching at Robert Gordon University, where she is an honorary professor in forensic science. She says she tries not to get personally involved in the human side of the work. She does to ensure that she can help police find out what happened in an objective way. When we get the samples, we give them an anonymized code so we don't associate with the human story until the very end, she said. I'm privileged to have the job I do because there's no better thing you can do than seeing the impact of the signs and how it impacts in the criminal justice system and getting as close to the truth as we possibly can to bring in some closure to families who are affected by these tragedies. And that report was written by Caroline Wilson. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 23rd of November 2022, Arts and Entertainments. From the shipyard to the Sarahid, Billy Connolly's Glasgow, by Gregor Kyle. Billy Connolly and the city where he was born and raised have been tightly interwoven throughout his eight decades. To paraphrase the famous song, while the big may belong to Glasgow, Glasgow most certainly belongs to him, and as he prepares to celebrate his 80th birthday on November 24, he stands as one of Glasgow's most recognisable sons and a symbol of the city. I consider myself a citizen of the world, said Connolly in an interview, but I was born and raised in Glasgow. It's where my first children were born, where I learnt to play the banjo, where I served my apprenticeship as a welder and where I first performed in public. My heart beats to the rhythm of Glasgow. It is in my blood. Walking around the city today, you don't have to look far for traces of the comedian's life, his jokes, his distinctly Glaswegian one-liners. Those places make for an unofficial Billy Connolly trail, one which not only tells the Biggins tale, but that of Glasgow, its people and its past. 69 Dover Street, Anderston. The tenement flat where Billy was born, on the linoleum, three floors up at six o'clock in the evening, has long been demolished. Connolly actually charts the dramatic changes that occurred in the Anderston and Finiston areas in the song I Wish I Was in Glasgow and laments the decline of his city. Of his old house, he says, I'd take you there and show you, but they've pulled the old place down, and when I think about it, it always makes me frown. They bulldozed it all to make a road. He does, however, end on a positive note, one that highlights his enduring love of the city. Glasgow gave me more than she ever took away. She prepared me for life in the road. Kinfon's Drive, Drum Chapel. Billy was 14 years old when his family, along with thousands of other city-dwelling Glaswegians, were shipped out to the new schemes. The Connolly's destination was Drum Chapel, a desert with Wendy's. The move did allow the family to flip to a larger home and, having shared two rooms in Anderson, they now lived in a two-storey house with separate bedrooms, a bathroom and a kitchen. His wife Pamela Stevenson would later tell in her book about Billy that it was at this time that the ongoing sexual abuse by his father would end, presumably due to the lack of opportunity. The Steel Mural, Anderson. Fitted in the side of new flats which looked down in the Clyde in the site of the old yards where Connolly first worked, this 20 foot by 16 foot steel mural immediately catches the eye of those crossing the Kingston Bridge visiting the SEC or Hydro, or driving along the Clydeside Expressway. It was designed and created by artist Andy Scott, who drew giant sketches in the wall of his studio, which were then approved by Connolly. The finished work shows him in his element during the Humblebum days, banjo in hand. Scott, who counts Falkirk's Kelpies and Glasgow's statue of Charles Rennie Macintosh amongst his works, 
unveiled the mural in November 2011 and said, It's been interesting capturing a living legend, but Mr Connolly never interfered and very quickly gave the finished artwork his blessing. St Gerard's Roman Catholic Secondary School, Govan. Located in Vickerfield Street, this well-known school closed in 1998 in a round of cost-cutting measures from Glasgow City Council. Connolly preferred St Jerry's to St Peter's, which he described as violent and abusive, a Dickensian hangover. During his formative years, he would often turn to his big sister Flo for protection, and she duly doled out beatings to any would-be bullies. Connolly was one of several famous pupils at his secondary school, which boasted two members of Celtic's all-conquering Lisbon Lions team of 1967, Jim Craig and Joe McBride, and another of Scotland's great entertainers, Johnny Beattie, also attended there in the 1940s. The Fairfield Museum, Govan. Most of the sprawling Clydeside yards have been lost in redevelopments, but the community-run Fairfield Museum in Govan offers the best insight into the life Connolly led in the shipyards. This was where the Biggian's sense of humour was formed, and where he learned how to deal with hecklers and critics. Starting at the yards age 15 as an apprentice welder, he also learned how to be imaginative in his approach to work. I was a tea boy and my job was to make welding noises. I would have the welding gear in one hand and a piece of steel in the other hitting the wall so they would look busy while they played cards. The Clutha Vaults in Scotia Bar, Glasgow City Centre. A favourite haunt of Connolly and a place where he played regularly as part of the Humble Bums with Jerry Rafferty. The Clutha, like the Scotia just up the road, was a hub for the city's thriving folk music scene and continues to provide a stage for local live acts today. When the former was engulfed in tragedy and an emergency helicopter crash-landed in the roof killing ten, Connolly paid his respects personally, appearing unannounced to lay a wreath among the other tributes. The Sparkle Horse Bar, Partick. This West End bar enjoys a link which stretches back to the days when it was known as the Downhill Bar. This was Connolly's father's favourite pub, and the one place in the world where the Big Ian was known as the Wee Ian. Billy's father, William Senior, enjoyed seniority in this establishment. Café de Giaconelli, Mary Hill Road. A relic of Glasgow's past, several such cafes were run by members of Glasgow's large Italian community, and had a reputation for producing some of the best ice cream in the country. Many have closed, but Giaconelli's is still going strong. Stepping inside today is like entering a time capsule with the original fixtures and fittings in place. Connolly made a surprise visit there several years ago with his grandchildren to sample the ice cream that the Giaconelli family named in his honour. The Aragon Bar, Byers Road. Like the Scotia and Clutha, the Aragon is still going strong and stands as one of the stalwarts in Glasgow's ever-changing West End. This pub is where Connolly penned his first professional contract, a one-year recording deal with his fellow humble bums for Transatlantic Records. He and Tam Harvey were the original members and were later joined by Jerry Rafferty. The trio would later go their separate ways, with Rafferty's leading to Baker Street and a successful career in music. Connolly, with his monologues between songs growing in length and raising increasingly bigger laughs, was bound for another stage. The Pavilion, Glasgow. The venue where Connolly established himself as a star in Scotland, one capable of selling out larger venues. This was where he enjoyed his first big run, selling out for an entire week in January-February 1974. The Pavilion remains one of the great Scottish theatres. Meanwhile, across the road stands a new building which was once the location of the legendary Apollo, where Connolly set a record with 16 sold-out shows over 12 days. Hindland Road and Redlands Road, Glasgow's West End, where Connolly lived when he was starting to establish himself as a musician and comedian. 
Biggin may now spend much of his time at his other home in Florida, but he spent many of those early years in the West End, not far from where he grew up. The latter address, a townhouse just off of Great Western Road, was his last home in the city before he moved out to a house in Drimmon near Loch Lomond. The Saracen Head, or as it is better known to locals, the Sari Heed, is the scene of what is arguably Connolly's greatest comedic sketch. Taking Jesus and his disciples from the Holy Land and parachuting them into a drunken night out in Glasgow, the crucifixion remains just as brilliant today, decades on from when it was first told on stage. The sketch led to protests outside his gigs. Connolly would delight in raising the blood pressure of evangelical pastor Jack Glass, but also showed his exceptional talent as a storyteller, setting the template for many modern-day stand-ups. You'll find it on YouTube and on various compilations today. Dig it out, sit back and marvel at 15 minutes of comedy genius. Celtic Park, Glasgow. One constant in Connolly's life is his love of Celtic Football Club, and he's been a firm friend of managers, players and fans dating back to the 1960s. He enjoyed a particularly close friendship with the late Bertie Auld and once led the Lisbon Lions out for a testimonial match against Rangers dressed in a half-Celtic stroke half-Rangers kit, hamming up the part of guest referee and revelling in the booze before stepping aside for the real ref ahead of kick-off. Supporting Fergus McCann's takeover of the club in the 1990s, he was rewarded with a seat for life at Celtic Park next to the one belonging to another famous boy, Rod Stewart. The People's Palace, Glasgow Green, the museum dedicated to Glasgow's people and city life is a fitting place for Connolly's famous banana boots and several other items of memorabilia to reside. The museum has suffered from several closures in recent years. Its famous winter gardens lie withered and shut, but it is reopened to visitors and is a place where Connolly's life and works, which so often reflect city life, form a part of a bigger and very Glaswegian story. The Billy Connolly Mural Trail Three specially commissioned portraits by three of his favourite artists this was Glasgow's gift to the big and dotted around the city. The first sits just off St Enoch Square, looking down to Clyde Street in the south side, painted by Jack Vetriano and showing the big and reaching for the sky. It's titled Dr Connolly, I presume. Near the Barras in its famous ballroom stands the big and. Painted by Rachel McLean, it shows him clad in an absurd kilted outfit, standing outside the Blue Lagoon chip shop in Dumbarton Road, not far from where he grew up in Partick. The final part of the trip, designed by John Byrne, is best seen from Osborne Street in the city centre. Each artist worked on their design individually before they were painted and installed by prolific Glaswegian street artist Rogue One by Gregor Kyle. The Herald, Thursday the 24th of November 2022. News. Glasgow Subway. Minister visits new trains ahead of 2023 introduction. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. Some of Glasgow's new subway trains are undergoing testing in the city ahead of their planned introduction to the circular network next year. Seven of the 17 trains are now in the city and are undergoing various stages of the strict testing regime required before they can carry passengers. Transport Minister Jenny Gilruth, who went to the subway's Govan Depot to see some of the four-car trains close up, said she is confident people will be delighted with the next generation of trains. She added the introduction of the new trains into the system will be a significant step in the modernisation programme and I look forward to visiting again when they come into service next year. 
The trains are undergoing their initial testing at a dedicated test track built by the Stadler-Hitachi joint venture, which has been contracted to deliver the trains, signalling and communication system for the subway. The first three trains are undergoing testing in the system at night and recently completed their first full-speed, full-circle test. Anthony Smith, Strathclyde Partnership for Transport Director of Subway, said he is pleased with how testing is going, but warned delivering the scale of this project while remaining operational is a massive challenge. He added, we are at a vitally important stage now with both train testing and signalling. We've recently had the first of a number of Sunday shutdowns to enable new signalling and communications equipment to begin to be installed in the tunnels for the new trains. He added the joint venture is confident that it remains on course to see the new trains introduced into the subway system next year. The new trains are part of a £288 million modernisation of the subway, which also includes refurbishment of its 15 stations and smart ticketing. This article is by Herald Online. The Herald, Friday the 25th of November 2022. News. Brexit. New twist in bizarre soap opera shows rush. This article is by Ian McConnell. It was difficult to know quite what to think. Upon hearing George Eustace's remarkable comments on the Australia trade deal done by the Conservative government, and agreed when he was a member of the Cabinet. Mr Eustace's intervention would have been comical in the extreme were the real-world ramifications of the Australia deal not so serious. However, the deal has very real negative implications for farmers in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK, among others, so utter exasperation seemed like a more apposite reaction. So what did Mr Eustace, who was Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs until September and is now a backbencher, have to say? He told the House of Commons last week, the first step is to recognise that the Australia trade deal is not actually a very good deal for the UK, which was not for a lack of trying on my part. The first part of this statement was not of itself remarkable, although it is certainly a euphemistic way of putting things. Not actually a very good deal does not really cut it. Bad would be an appropriate description of the deal and would have saved a few words. What was astounding about Mr Eustace's declaration, however, was that it came from a Brexiteer who was part of the Cabinet when the Australia deal was agreed in 2021. It is also worth noting that it was not as if Mr Eustace and other Cabinet members at the time had not been warned about ploughing ahead with the Australia trade deal in the form that was ultimately finalised. The farming community in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK made its views more than plain so did Scottish Government ministers. 
Scottish Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs, Mary Goujon, in an open letter in May last year to then International Trade Secretary, Liz Truss, wrote, As we have been clear since the Scottish Government's response to your Department's consultation on future FTAs, free trade agreements in 2018, an FTA with Australia must not undercut Scotland's world-leading food standards or lead to a zero-tariff oblique quota agreement. At a time when UK agri-food producers are facing significantly greater barriers to trade with Europe, the sector's largest export market, it would be incomprehensible for the UK government to sign up to a trade deal that would facilitate mass imports of Australian agri-food produced to a lesser standard. A trade deal that liberalises tariffs for Australian farmers, to put it bluntly, will put UK farmers out of business. Weeks later, Ms Goujon and Northern Ireland's Minister of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, Edwin Poots, sent a joint letter to Ms Truss, hammering home fears over the effects of the free trade deal that had by then been agreed in principle with Australia. The Scottish and Northern Irish Rural Affairs Ministers told Ms Truss, we have previously stressed to you and remain extremely concerned following the recent announcement that the UK government is signing up to a deal that would lead to a sustained increase in imports of Australian agri-food and produced to lesser standards in relation to animal welfare and future environmental commitments. As you know, agriculture and food standards are devolved responsibilities. We have been clear that where there is an increase in imports of Australian agri-food, this must be managed by tariff rate quotas that are not eroded over time. This is to ensure that domestic producers are protected and not disproportionately impacted. A proposed 15-year cap on imports will provide no comfort for our farming communities and would set a very damaging precedent for future FTAs, free trade agreements, yet to be agreed. Ms Goujon and Mr Poots expressed concern over the size of quotas, which after 15 years equate to 16% of UK beef consumption and 49% of UK sheep meat consumption. So the Conservative government had plenty of warning. What appeared to be the case at the time, however, and nothing that has happened in between times has changed this impression, is that the UK government was in an unseemly hurry to conclude a trade deal with Australia. This seemed to stem in large part from the Tory Brexiteers' abject failure to deliver the huge new trade deals that they promised the electorate would bring major gains for the UK after it left the European Union a departure which it must now be realised saw the country lose the enormous benefits of being part of the world's largest free trade bloc. Of course, any net benefit from an Australian deal, even in the most advantageous form, was always going to pale into complete insignificance 
relative to the massive damage stemming from the loss of frictionless trade and the ending of free movement of people between the UK and EU countries. However, it seemed that the Tories nevertheless felt they could bang the drum loudly about an Australia trade deal and the electorate would be happy. Maybe this was something to do with the Boris Johnson administration's seeming obsession with the Commonwealth and some extremely outdated notions about what is big and what is not in terms of world trade. Interestingly, Mr Eustace himself highlighted last week the rush that the UK was in to do a trade deal with Australia come what may. Asking what lessons could be learned from the Australia trade deal, Mr Eustace said, First and most important, we should not set arbitrary timescales for concluding negotiations. The UK went into this negotiation holding the strongest hand, holding all the best cards. But at some point in early summer 2021, the then Trade Secretary, my right honourable friend, the member for South West Norfolk, Liz Truss, took a decision to set an arbitrary target to conclude heads of terms by the time of the G7 summit. And from that moment, the UK was repeatedly on the back foot. In fact, at one point, the then Trade Secretary asked her Australian opposite number what he would need in order to be able to conclude an agreement by the time of the G7. Of course, the Australian negotiator kindly set out the Australian terms, which eventually shaped the deal. To say the UK was on the back foot is putting it mildly, and this is not just with the Australians. Any country with which the Tories have discussed trade deals in recent years must surely have sensed desperation, as the Brexiters have attempted to show some benefits from EU exit, so far it appears to no avail. Mr Eustace seems very dissatisfied indeed with the Australia deal. In this regard, however, we should perhaps bear in mind what appears to be most unrealistic expectations among Brexiters in general about the UK's clout on the world stage these days. We are a long way away indeed, from days of empire, but it is not clear that many Brexiteers realise this. Mr Eustace declared, let us not forget that while we are about to open our market to unbridled access for Australian beef, Australia remains one of the few countries left in the world that maintains an absolute export ban for British beef. Not a single kilo of British beef can be sold in Australia since it maintains a protectionist ban using the BSE bovine spongiform eclephalopathy episode as a sham reason for doing so. Laying out his position, Mr Eustace told the House of Commons, I was in the Cabinet in 2021 and I was on the Cabinet subcommittee that argued over the Australian trade deal. For yes, there were deep arguments and differences about how we should approach it. But since I now enjoy the freedom of the backbenches, 
I no longer have to put such a positive gloss on what was agreed. I hope my right honourable friend, Minister for Trade Policy, Greg Hans, will understand my reason for doing this, which is that unless we recognise the failures the Department for International Trade made during the Australia negotiations, we will not be able to learn the lessons for future negotiations. There are critical negotiations underway right now, notably on the CPTPP, Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, and on Canada, and it is essential that the Department does not repeat the mistakes it made. Trying to appear less desperate to do trade deals might improve the UK's negotiating position, but given the overarching reality, only at the margin. Mr Eustace describes the negotiations on a Canada trade deal and on the CPTPP as critical. That is hugely overstating things, given any benefits even from the most advantageous deals on these fronts would be very small indeed, relative to the huge losses from Brexit. This is a simple truth, and one that Mr Eustace and his fellow Tory MPs would do well to bear in mind. This article is by Ian McConnell. The Herald, Friday the 25th of November 2022, News. Vincent Renouard, Holocaust denier being sent funds while on remand. This article is by Craig Williams. Supporters of Holocaust denier Vincent Renouard are banding together to send the Frenchman money and letters of encouragement to his Edinburgh prison cell, the Herald can reveal. The 53-year-old was remanded in custody at HMP Edinburgh following a hearing at Edinburgh Sheriff Court last week ahead of an extradition hearing in February. Ray Neward was arrested in Anstruther Fife on Thursday, November 10th in a joint operation involving Scottish and French authorities. He had been the subject of a two-year search for his whereabouts, led by France's Central Office for the Fight Against Crimes Against Humanity and Hate Crimes, with the French press claiming that he had spent his time in Scotland working as a private tutor under a false identity. Since his arrest, the hashtags, hashtag Liberty Pour Reignard and hashtag Je Suisse Vincent, have appeared on Twitter as his supporters in his native France attempt to encourage others to assist him financially and write letters to him addressed to his Edinburgh jail cell. One tweet seen by the Herald lists the address of HMP Edinburgh, where Renouard is being held alongside his cell number. It also details how supporters can send money to him via the Scottish Prison Service, Prisoner Funds Central, an online tool which enables funds to be sent to friends and loved ones who are currently in custody in Scotland. The tweet reads, To help Vincent financially, which he really needs right now, there are two ways. 
£5 sterling can be sent directly to him in cash at the postal address indicated above, but the limit must not exceed £50 sterling for each transaction. The details have also been included in an article titled All About Vincent Renouard by French far-right website Jeune Nation, named after French nationalist and neo-fascist far-right movement that was founded in 1949. Renouard was convicted under anti-Nazi laws across the Channel, where he was given a four-month jail term in November 2020 and a further six months in January 2021. Holocaust denial has been a criminal offence in France since 1990 and Renouard has been convicted on numerous occasions. He was given a four-month jail term in November 2020 and a further six months in January 2021. His latest conviction was in relation to a series of anti-Semitic posts on social media. The Frenchman writing on far-right platform Gab this year claimed he was able to avoid having to surrender to the authorities thanks to the steady stream of donations he had received from his supporters as well as the income he received from his few hours a week working as an online maths tutor. He wrote that his very simple life in a small room consisted of creating videos, cycling, reading and meditating while eating the same food every day, fresh vegetables and Weetabix, financed entirely by donations from his followers on the right-wing platform. A Scottish Prison Service spokesperson said, We don't comment on individuals in our care. A prisoner funds account, which is available in each establishment, holds funds which SPS are responsible for on behalf of prisoners, including personal cash, wages and PIN phone balances. Every individual in our care has access to this system, whereby money can be transferred in by friends and family to be used to purchase PIN phone top-ups, sundry items and canteen products. One method of paying funds into a prisoner's local account is by bank transfer, for which an online reference generator is used. Guidance on this is available on the SPS website, including the upper limit of £50 per transfer. In addition to this, local limits may also be set for cash handed in or sent in at the discretion of the governor of each establishment. Transactions can also be monitored for security purposes where intelligence deems appropriate. This article is by Craig Williams. They held the 25th of November and the Voices section. Bosses must step up to the plate in the cost of living crisis by Phil Worms. Phil Worms is Chief Executive of Glasgow-based Frog Systems, which provides digital employee well-being support for companies and organisations. Amid the ceaseless barrage of media noise over the cost-of-living crisis, rocketing fuel prices and the conflict in Ukraine, it's easy to forget that at the centre of it all is health and well-being of millions of people. 
Despite the political rhetoric of the bumps in the road and challenges ahead, and amid platitudinous reassurances that we're all in this together, for millions of our fellow citizens, it will not feel like that. The harsh reality is that between now and next spring, in a supposedly prosperous and compassionate country, millions will go cold and hungry and will suffer physically and mentally while feeling isolated and abandoned. As individuals, we can help by donating and lending our support in kind and labour to charities who are doing what they can to support and ease the financial burdens on our communities. Employers, too, have a responsibility to support staff with mental health, health issues, both in understanding their triggers and taking reasonable measures to ensure they are not exacerbated at work. What can employers do to support their staff through the coming crisis? The first rule for supporting employees, regardless of an organisation's size, is not to make promises that can't be kept. In this time of insecurity, a balanced approach is needed, one that will provide employees with help now, while building their financial resilience in the future. There are two principal things an employer can do to help employees tackle the financial aspect of the cost of living crisis. Increase pay or help reduce their costs. The first option, while appearing to be the simplest to action, is not viable for many organisations feeling the impact of financial pressures too. For the second option, to work effectively, the employer must understand what the employee needs, as these will differ according to the individual. A one-size-fits-all approach will not work. For example, some who are hybrid working, the cost savings and the commute might outwear their expenditure on gas and electricity while working at home. For others, the reverse will be true. Salary sacrifice schemes can provide employees with quick access to things like childcare and the transport support in a cost-effective way for them and their employer. It is assumed that every employee has a good grasp of budgeting and managing their personal finances. However, this is not always the case, and it is this area that presents a real opportunity for an employer to offer support. In the main, employers stepped up to the plate during the COVID pandemic, and they must do so again if we are to come through the cost of living crisis. Not only does it make real business sense to have a strong, resilient and well workforce, but it's simply the right thing to do. That was by Phil Worms. The Herald, the 25th of November and the Voices section. Eyebrows raised, as Jack says, we've never had it so good, by Robert McNeil. Westminster was the place for Scots to be yesterday, following an arguably controversial decision on independence by the Supreme Court in yonder London. Champies got more than a fair crack of the whip, so to say, during Prime Minister's questions. Ian Blackford, the SNP's Westminster leader, led by announcing portentously, the very idea that the United Kingdom is a voluntary union of nations is now dead and buried. Alan Doran's SNP says Scotland was shackled and imprisoned in the union, while Chris Law said the ruling clearly exposed the myth that we're in it by consent. Well, that's pretty much ululated. Among, along similar lines, with uh, Amy Callaghan saying, Can the Prime Minister tell us how a nation can leave the so-called voluntary union? And Karen Oswald, the SNP's Deputy Westminster Leader, saying, Is he seriously telling us that this is a voluntary union of equals? 
The he, under advisement, was Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of that ilk, who declined to get overexcited about the issue, but merely rhubarbed the usual guff about working together. Why? Doing just that had resulted in a splendid museum in Dundee, he averred at one point. Former Tory PM Theresa May, wearing a talk round her neck worthy of Boadicea, got more into the philosophical and spiritual aspects of the issue, saying, Scotland is a proud nation with a unique heritage. Yes, as is every other nation, but do go on. It is a valued member of our family of nations. She didn't say which family. Adams, by the sound of it. Lady May said the ruling gave the SNP the opportunity for once to put the people of Scotland first. Yes, just like the Conservatives have traditionally done. The issue continued after PMQs in a much-emptied chamber, with the SNP back packed into one corner as Mr Blackford raised it as an urgent question. Batting for England was Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack, a man so low-key he could be limbo dance under the Timpsons' counter wearing a top hat. He has the repertoire of a remedial parrot coming out of a coma. If he were a mere cat, his feet would be sticking up. He doesn't even have lucid intervals, but just reads from the script. He'd be as well just standing up and singing Old Man River. Yesterday, he even told Scots they'd never had it so good. The benefits of being part of the United Kingdom have never been more apparent. Mr Blackford begged to differ, averring furthermore that having won eight elections in a row, the SNP's mandate for referendum was clear. Unfortunately, and unbelievably for this sketch's purposes, Ian's mind was still on sausages as he hollered, Scotland didn't vote for breakfast, uh, Brexit. No kidding, I've checked it, and the resultant chortling from members back. At a pinch, it might have been breakfast, breakfast, whatever that is, but honestly, this sketch writes itself some days. Alistair wasn't swallowing this guff about breakfast, but claimed that with less than a third of Scots voting SNP, there was no mandate. Former Tory Scottish Secretary David Mundell complained about the people in Scotland having to wait for an ambulance, a phenomenon completely unknown in Mother England. This is the time to move on, he added. Good, go- good call. Cheerio. To a session of English Tory MPs demanding how lucky we were that the UK Parliament gave Scotland a referendum, Sir Bernard Jenkins, or of their enormous fondness and love for Scotland, Richard Graham, Alistair's stock answer was, My honourable friend is absolutely right. To the succession of SNP MPs making the same point over and over about a mandate, Alistair answered over and over, I refer to the answer I gave earlier. Gavin Newland's SNP complained of this smug, patronising and cloth-eared response, while Owen Thompson said that after countless members asking how Scots could exercise their democratic right, what was the answer? Reposted Alistair ingeniously, the answer I gave earlier. He might as well have said, I refer to the rendition of Old Man River I gave previously. Dave Dugan, SNP, said this referring to previous answers was nothing short of parody, while his colleague Douglas Chapman thought it nothing short of parody, in the sense of a certain famous comic sketch averring, this union has ceased to be, it is bereft of life, it is a dead union. 
retorted Mr. Jack. Oh, we've resorted to quoting Monty Python. That doesn't surprise me. I refer the honourable member to the answer I gave earlier. Oh, yes. What, that ans- what answer was that again? That was by Robert McNeil. From the Herald, 28th November, 2022. From the sports section. Scott Donaldson looking forward to home comforts as Scottish Open returns home by Graham McPherson. The life of an athlete isn't always as glamorous as it may appear from the outside. A decade on the professional snooker circuit has meant Scott Donaldson checking in and out of more hotels than a travelling salesman. The 28-year-old is not grumbling about his lot, but the chance to sleep in his own bed during the Bet Victor Scottish Open that begins today in Edinburgh is a rare luxury, especially when you spend most of your working life on the road. Donaldson comes from Perth originally, but now lives in Dunfermline, making his commute this week a short scoot across the Queensferry crossing. It is a journey he knows well, given he plays out of the Lucarno Snooker Club in Slateford, and one that will take on extra significance as this tournament returns to Scotland for the first time in three years, and to Edinburgh specifically, for the first time since 2003. The newly renovated Meadowbank Centre will play host to a number of the world's leading players, including John Higgins, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, Sean Murphy and defending champion Luca Brussel. For Donaldson, the chance to play at home in front of family and friends is an occasion to be cherished. This week is going to be good as I stand at Fermland, so it's only going to be a half an hour's drive, he says. And it'll be nice to sleep in my own bed for an event for the first time. My club's in Edinburgh, so I'm used to making that journey. So it'll just be like a normal day for me, which will be good. Normally we're preparing to play an event down south somewhere, so you've got to factor in your travel and where you're going to stay. The novelty of staying in a hotel wore off some time ago. You'd rather have your home comforts if possible. So this tournament is different from the others, so I'm really looking forward to it. It probably brings with it a little bit more pressure, as it's my home event, as you especially want to do well. But I don't mind that at all. Last year it was held in Wales, which was a bit bizarre, with the qualifying in Barnsley. So it's good to be back playing up here and at Edinburgh for the first time for a while. The fans here really like their snooker. So I'd hope we get a decent crowd in throughout the week. I'm expecting my dad will come along, a few boys from the club, and maybe even a few of the guys I used to play with back in Perth. It'll be nice knowing they're in the background watching, but when you're on the table, you just have to concentrate on doing your job. The prize up for grabs this week is the Stephen Hendry Trophy, named after Scotland's greatest ever player. Unsurprisingly, he was a role model for Donaldson in the early days too. I started out at the Spencer Snooker Club in Stirling, which is where he practiced for years, he reveals. He was definitely an idol of mine early on, although not so much anymore. But him having so much success probably added to the reasons that I wanted to play snooker. Donaldson defeated Higgins back in July to claim a notable scalp at the start of the season, but hasn't been able to replicate that form since, failing to progress beyond the last 32 of any event. The world number 53 has been around the sport long enough now, however, to know that there isn't always one major reason behind a run of poor results, then it can always change again, just as quickly. I still enjoy practicing and I still enjoy competing, he adds, 
but I don't enjoy it when I'm playing rubbish. I don't think anyone does in any sport. But when you're playing well, there's no better feeling. Getting the best out of yourself is what I enjoy doing. I know what my limitations are, as well as my weaknesses and strengths, and it's about playing to those. I don't take it that seriously anymore. To be honest, even when I'm doing well, as you know, it can turn very quickly. And when you're playing badly, you just have to keep searching for answers, even though it might not be one obvious thing that's holding you back. Sometimes you take a step back, and when you're playing well to analyse what you've been doing differently, and the answer will often be nothing. It's just part and parcel of life. There are always good and bad times, and it can change just as quickly either way. I'm not beating myself up about how the last few events have gone. Performances and results don't always match up. I know I have it in me to play better, so to do that at the Scottish Open would be nice. That article was by Graham McPherson. This article is from The Herald. On Monday the 28th of November 2022. It's from the opinion section and the headline is The Heidi Croter abortion ruling should concern us all. The report is by Kevin McKenna. In the early months of COVID-19, the Scottish and UK governments attempted to normalise the concept of state-sponsored euthanasia in the care home sector. It was only after a public outcry, born on what we considered to be a basic sense of morality, that this approach was halted. During this time, more people died of the virus in Scotland's care homes than in hospital. Sacrificing the lives of the elderly and the infirm was considered to be an acceptable emergency measure in the teeth of a lethal contagion. As a means of freeing up space for the young and the fit, our governments chose to discharge old people from hospital straight into care homes without first being tested for the virus. Almost overnight, these places, lacking adequate supplies of PPE and staff training, were turned into death camps. In many instances, care home staff, suspecting something sinister was happening, were ordered not to discuss their concerns. Amnesty produced a 50-page report on similarly iniquitous attitudes in England. The report, as if expendable, the UK government's failure to protect older people in care homes during the COVID-19 pandemic, showed that the elderly in care were effectively tossed overboard during the health crisis. It seemed that attitudes among the UK's political class hadn't changed much since the Black Death in the 14th century. At the first major sign of adversity, all those hallmarks we consider to be characteristic of a modern, progressive and enlightened society simply evaporated. Social progress, scientific expertise, constantly groundbreaking medical advances counted for nothing if you were unlucky enough to be old and not quite in full possession of your mental and physical faculties. You know how you've been thinking about death quite a lot lately, Mr Smith? Well, don't be planning too far ahead. Just saying, like, Heidi Croter isn't old, though. She's only 27 and is bright, articulate and bubbly. Like many other people who have Down syndrome, she's surrounded by people who love her and want her to live her best life. And if Heidi is anything like my niece Kira, she'll be bringing a lot of happiness to her family and friends. Last Friday, though, 
Miss Croter found that, like those vulnerable and elderly people in the early months of COVID, society doesn't consider hers a life worth living at all. Not really. Three senior Court of Appeal judges dismissed her appeal of a High Court judgment last year in a case brought against the Department of Health and Social Care about changing the law on abortion. Specifically, it challenged the legislation which allows the abortion of babies with Down syndrome up until birth. Along with Moira Lee Wilson, the mother of Aidan, a young boy who has Down syndrome, Miss Croter thinks this part of the 1990 Abortion Act is incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. Dismissing her appeal, the judges said that abortion laws were for Parliament to decide and that the Act did not interfere with the rights of the living disabled. They were wrong, and grievously so. An investigation by the Sunday Times last year found that the number of babies born with Down syndrome fell by around 30% in those hospitals deploying a new prenatal testing technique called cell-free DNA. It's effectively another step in ensuring that, in the future, people with Down syndrome will no longer exist. And when this happens, then the rest of us had better start looking over our shoulders. By its most widely accepted definition, eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. We saw where that led in Europe 80 years ago. This sewage is now lapping at our ankles in 21st century Britain. If Down syndrome can be exterminated as easily as this, then how do those others now counted as the living disabled feel today? In the midst of an economic crisis already disproportionately hitting the living vulnerable, how long before the living disabled are considered a burden that society can no longer afford? Effectively, the UK's two main governments considered that question in early 2020 and then acted accordingly. Miss Croter said of the judge's decision, It makes me feel that I shouldn't be here, that I should be extinct. I know that's not true, but that's how it makes me feel. She then compared how the law views her, compared with her newborn nephew. I was flabbergasted that the law protects him and not me. The decision in the Heidi Croter case also has disturbing parallels with what is being proposed in the Assisted Dying for the Terminally Ill Adults Scotland Bill being brought by the Liberal Democrat MSP Liam MacArthur. In several other countries where euthanasia has been legalised, all the promised safeguards rapidly evaporate so that many more vulnerable people are caught up in the vortex. Serious illness can often lead to profound psychological distress and depression, but rather than work to alleviate this with targeted treatment, we point them in the direction of death. It's the quickest and most economically effective way out, after all. Mr MacArthur's grievously ill-drafted bill wants to hand these poor people a gun, rather than provide genuine care for them. And if this can be achieved without any proper debate about funding better psychiatric and palliative care, then so much the better. A stealthy narrative is coiled around this, targeting vulnerable people and their families, that they are a financial and care drain on limited resources. The former Labour politician Dennis Canavan expressed these concerns much more eloquently than me. Mr Canavan lost his four children, three of them after a terminal illness. My children 
undoubtedly underwent some pain, he said, but it was minimised by caring health professionals. As a result, my children died in dignity and I do not accept that the option of assisted suicide is necessary to ensure dignity in death. Proponents of the proposed suicide legislation have spent almost a decade trying to get it over the line. A sophisticated marketing campaign and at least one suggestible national newspaper title have been pumping out propaganda to chip away at deep public unease. You wonder what they might have achieved if they had spent as much time and energy seeking to improve palliative care for terminally ill people rather than hurrying along their deaths. We have a culture of death in Scotland, though, where the quick fix of legalised killing is seen as the cost-effective path of least resistance. It will always beat improving life for people with complex end-of-life illnesses. This report was by Kevin McKenna. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 28th of November 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Avenue 5, Armando Iannucci's sci-fi comedy returns. By Susan Swarbrick, Comiston Senior Features Writer. What's the story? Avenue 5. Tell me more. HBO sci-fi comedy, the brainchild of Veet in the Thick of It creator Armando Iannucci, is back for a second run. Starring Hugh Laurie and Josh Gad, the action unfolds aboard the luxurious interplanetary cruise ship Avenue 5, operating in a near future where space tourism is booming. A momentary loss of artificial gravity and the accidental death of the chief engineer has sent the titular craft a few degrees off course. The upshot? What was meant to be an eight-week voyage through the solar system will now take three years. As the debut series wrapped in 2020, a catalogue of errors in attempting to correct the course had only made things worse. Projected time to Earth, now eight years. Anything else? How Star Laurie plays Captain Ryan Clark the charismatic yet barely competent figurehead of the automated spaceship who has no clue how to fly it, with Gad, who voiced Olaf and Frozen as Herman Judd, the eccentric billionaire owner of Avenue 5. The cast also includes Zach Woods, Silicon Valley, Lenora Critchlow, Goliath, and Susie Nakamura, dead to me, as well as Rebecca Front, who plays hapless MP Nicola Murray in the thick of it. When can I watch? Avenue 5 begins in Sky Comedy and now, Wednesday 10pm, all episodes available to stream that day. By Susan Swarbrick. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 28th of November 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Review. SCO stroke Amelia City Halls, Glasgow, 5 stars. By Keith Bruce. Music. SCO stroke Amelia City Halls, Glasgow, Keith Bruce, 5 stars. Wise up occasional Glasgow concert goers. When the Scottish Chamber Orchestra calls a concert Maxim's Baroque Inspirations, it's time to put your hand in your pocket. You may not go to mainstream classical concerts regularly, but typically you like American minimalism and its offspring, and you also enjoy the livelier examples of early music. So when the SCO's young principal conductor, Maxim Amelianichev, is given the freedom to pair music from 300 years ago with more recent pieces that show its influence. There is the promise of a programme that will appeal beyond the orchestra's regular attenders. Not that there wasn't a good audience at the City Halls on Friday evening, and a very healthy turnout of young people among that number, but really there should not have been an empty seat for what was a glorious sequence of music that even continued through the interval. 
partakings may have suffered at half time because the conductor playing recorder led a sextet with two fiddles, bass, guitar and percussion into the foyer to play some music by London-based contemporary of Vivaldi, Nicola Matisse. It is a trick of Amelia Anagyfs that worked particularly well in the Candle Riggs venue and it made it a very effective bridge between the first half music which the SEO played seated in the platform and the second half performed standing and framed by two Vivaldi concertos with the 26 musicians placed in perfect symmetry in the stage. Beyond that, the conductor had a larger frame in mind, unveiling an encore of one of Edvard Grieg's elegiac melodies to echo the composer's Holberg suite that had begun the programme two hours earlier. It was much less the Baroque pastiche it can sometimes seem than effervescent tribute, as well as the evening's most familiar music. French organist and composer Thierry Esquet's Baroque song was written just 15 years ago, but draws in Bach chorals for material to create three movements with a dark underscore. If there's something Hammer Horror or Phantom of the Opera about the result, the 1980 Gorecki Harpsichord Concerto that followed with Amelia Anichev himself as soloist was equally cinematic in its relentless motoric minimalism. But there was something of the late Jerry Lee Lewis and the conductor's keyboard playing there. His mobility during the Vivaldi was more than the Keith Emerson playbook. Between the pieces by the Italian master Paul Hinsmith's suite of French dance music written for Yale music students in 1948, featured a superbly voiced group of exactly half the number of musicians and, of course, chimed perfectly with the programme bonus we'd heard in the foyer. A brilliantly conceived and realised event by Keith Bruce. The Herald, Tuesday the 29th of November 2022. News. Hundreds of residential homes may close, warns Care Chief. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. Hundreds of care homes could close in Scotland if issues around the cost of living and NHS crisis are not addressed, ministers have been warned. Donald McCaskill, Chief Executive of Scottish Care, which represents private and charity-run care homes, raised his concerns about the situation in homes across the country. He predicted that up to 40% of the 800 homes, 320, could be forced to shut due to the current crisis across the health service. Many homes are struggling to recruit staff as a result of pay, work pressure and investigations over COVID deaths in residential care. As a result of a lack of beds in the sector, many hospital patients who are not acutely ill but need care support cannot be discharged, compounding problems in the health service. Mr McCaskill told the BBC's Sunday show Unless we address those issues, we will not have a social care sector for older people in terms of residential care worth its name by next spring. People falling ill to flu has also put added strain on services, while elderly people could be forced to move home if problems are not addressed, according to McCaskill. He added, we have just over 800 care homes as our members. The vast majority are small family-run businesses. If you're part of a larger group, you're much more sustainable. We have estimated that between 30 and 40% of that total, 
unless we address, as you rightly say, soaring energy costs, soaring food costs, workforce costs, not least agencies and a whole manifold range of real pressures, not least of which is spiralling numbers of people falling ill to the flu. Unless we address those issues, we will not have a social care sector for older people in terms of residential care worth its name by next spring. The consequences, first and foremost, are the lives and the quality of life of some of our most important citizens are going to be profoundly impacted and affected. You do not want, in your 90s, having arrived at a place where you were finally able to be supported in your advanced dementia, to be informed that you're going to have to move to a different place because that care home cannot sustain itself. We cannot allow, in the midst of the current crisis, the quality care and provision of older people to be sacrificed simply because people are not attending to the real issues that are facing the sector. Deputy SNP Leader and Justice Secretary Keith Brown described the situation in Scotland as serious. He said, it's a serious situation and I think that's been acknowledged by the Health Secretary. The priority now is to try and get a pay deal over the line to make sure we can keep people at work. The structure of the situation in the UK whereby the health consequentials very much relate to what the UK government's priorities are, mean that I think for years now we failed to match other European countries. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. From the Herald, Tuesday the 29th of November 2022, from the News section. Surgeon Leader. Other NHS funding models worth debating. By Helen McArdle. One of Scotland's leading medics said it is worth having a debate about alternative models of funding healthcare, but he remains a great supporter of the NHS. Professor Rowan Parks, the newly appointed president of the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh, RCSE, said colleagues who had gone to work in the Middle East or the US had become disillusioned because of how they've seen things done. Although Professor Park said he would not rule out controversial suggestions, such as asking wealthier patients to contribute to the cost of treatment, he stressed that this would need much wider debate and he would not take a view until I've heard from those who have proposed it or understand more about it. Leaked minutes from a meeting of health board chief executives sparked an outcry last week when it was revealed that they had touted the idea of adopting a two-tier system where the more affluent are asked to pay for NHS operations as a way of reforming the cash-strapped service. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said an SNP-led Scottish Government would never resort to such an arrangement. However, the row has sparked interest in whether alternative funding models should be considered. Professor Parks, a pancreatic surgeon, Professor of Surgical Sciences and Deputy Director of Medicine for NHS Education for Scotland, NES, which oversees medical training, said, I still think that our NHS in Scotland is second to none for the whole population need. Yes, you can go to the States, 
Hong Kong, big centres in China, and you see state-of-the-art delivery. But that's not delivered across their entire population. I think it's always worth having a debate. One of the privileges I've had from travelling around the world is having the, those conversations. Maybe not with politicians and senior managers, but with clinicians and surgical colleagues. There should be ongoing discussion about what other models could be considered. I don't shy away from that debate, but I've always come back to the view that the NHS delivers care in a very good way. I've got clinical colleagues who've gone to places like the Middle East or America to work for a while and then become disillusioned because of how they see things done. Professor Parks, who was acting director of NES during the pandemic, added that he did not recognise suggestions in the leaked minutes of a disconnect between the government and its clinical advisers. That's not been my experience, said Professor Parks. My experience is that the clinical voice is listened to. Professor Parks takes leadership of the RCSE at a time when the number of people on waiting lists for an elective procedure in Scotland has nearly doubled, from around 77,000 before the pandemic to nearly 140,000 by the end of June this year. The next set of statistics, setting out the position as of September the 30th, will be published today. Professor Park said the creation of dedicated elective hubs separate from the main acute hospitals would help enormously to clear the backlogs by ensuring that staff, beds and theatre space were not constantly pulled away to deal with emergency admissions. However, in the short term, he said patients' surgeries must be prioritised on the basis of need rather than a drive to cut waiting list numbers as quickly as possible by doing lots of simpler operations. Professor Park said, getting through a lot of the high-volume, low-complexity work will be one aspect of clearing the backlog. It's relatively easy to say cancer patients should be prioritised, but there are also patients who have non-malignant, non-cancerous diagnoses whose quality of life is significantly impaired by disability and pain. I know from my orthopaedic colleagues that this is a major issue. It comes back to the clinical voice. The clinical voice will be very important when it comes to prioritising patients based on need as opposed to what might just be a way of getting the numbers down. Professor Park said his major focus would also be on training, recruitment and retention, with pay and conditions repeatedly raised at an issue by college members. Doctors and dentists UK-wide have been awarded a 4.5 pay percent deal which has been branded a brutal pay cut by the BMA. However, no decision has yet been taken on whether to ballot consultants in Scotland for industrial action. There is also anger over punitive pension taxes, which are spurring some clinicians to reduce their hours or retire early. In July this year, a damning report by Westminster's Health Select Committee, chaired by now Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, branded the situation a national scandal and called for urgent action by government to reform NHS pensions to prevent the hemorrhage of senior staff. However, Mr Hunt's autumn statement failed to address the issue. Professor Park said making electoral surgical hubs a reality would require a combination of new recruitment and thinking a lot about retention of staff who would otherwise be leaving. He said doctors in their 50s and 60s could be persuaded to stay on longer if they could reduce arduous frontline and on-call commitments, but added that there is also a fear that many younger doctors could drop out. Morale has been low coming out of the pandemic, said Professor Parks. 
There is a perception that some of our trainees will leave and go overseas and therefore be lost to the workforce. That's not a new thing. I did some work five or six years ago looking at the patterns UK-wide and yes, there is a proportion of junior doctors who leave at the end of foundation training. They usually go away for one or at most two years, but because we can track them using their GMC number, we know that 85-90% to 90 of them, at least historically, came back again. During the pandemic, all that dried up. Now, from talking to my junior colleagues and watching what they're saying on social media, I suspect some of them will step out. It will remain to be seen whether they come back. However, Professor Parks stressed that statistics also show an opposite trend of application for doctor training posts in the NHS increasing year on year from a mixture of UK and international candidates. He said, We're starting to see the benefit of additional medical student numbers that went in five or six years ago. Those students are now starting to graduate, so that is increasing the number of domestic applicants for training posts. What we've also seen, because of change in immigration regulations, is an increase in international applicants. Pleasingly, the applications for 2023 training posts are increasing, and that's gone up year on year over the last few years, despite the pandemic. This article was by Helen McArdle. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.